This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jacob Gaffney. I'm the editor-in-chief of Housing Wire. I am joined today for our series, Six Questions for HUD Executives. I have Michael at Ginny May. Very, very exciting time over at Ginny May. Uh, he's the acting president and um, a lot of other things as well. Uh, good morning, Michael. How are you today? Good morning. How are you? Great to talk to you. Great. So Michael is joining us out in California. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, talk to uh, everyone who is a, a supporter of Housing Wire. Um, there's so many things that you've done, Michael, that we're going to get into in a bit. But uh, first and foremost, I want to talk about your role at Ginny May. When did you uh, join? When did you take over? And how is that going for you now? Right. Um, well, you know, I, I came to Jenny about a year and a half ago. Um, I had been working at the Milken Institute, uh, working on some housing finance reform papers with Ed DeMarco, who, uh, who I had formed a friendship with mm-hmm. when I worked on Capitol Hill for Senator Corker. And, um, you, you know, some of the papers that we were writing and some of the thinking we were doing on, on the state of the U.S. housing system uh, was focused a little bit on this increasing role for Jenny May and what Jenny May was doing to facilitate access to capital for housing in the U.S., how Ginny May had grown, what the ramifications were of Ginny May growing, and, and beyond that, sort of what the possibilities were for Ginny in a future housing finance system, because Ginny brings a lot of unique uh, value to the table in terms of our housing ecosystem. And so I'd spent about a year um, writing these papers with Ed, and um, all of a sudden, you know, uh, in November of 2016, it just kind of dawned on me that if I really believe in these papers and I really, um, and by believe in these papers, I mean, if I really believe that Ginny May plays this incredibly important role in our ecosystem and Ginny May has a lot to bring to access and affordability for American housing, um, then maybe I should, uh, raise my hand and, and give a shot of actually, uh, seeing what we could do with Ginny and making sure that it was well run. We had raised some concerns, um, about the evolution of the servicing system. We had raised, some concerns about affordability and pricing, and it seemed like a chance to kind of uh, really, instead of just writing about these concerns, see if we could do something about them personally. And so uh, in November, December of 2016, I submitted my resume to the transition team, and about three months later, I got a call from HUD to do a job interview, and, and I've, I've been here uh, steering the ship ever since. Excellent. And Ed DeMarco, of course, is the uh, former head of the FHFA. Uh, That's correct. Very, very uh, dedicated uh, servant in the public trust, um, someone whom I respected immensely, uh, especially seeing all of his congressional hearings, you know. So I, I imagine he was uh, excellent to work with. Very uh, soft-spoken, uh, but into very, very intellectual. Um, and of course, you mentioned Corker as, as well. You were you were key with the Corker Warner Bill, which is a which is a GSE reform measure. I mean, uh, you've 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 been involved in a lot of these sort of housing reforms, and it sounds like you have this dedication to the goal of Ginny May, which is providing financing for 
you know, so many Americans via FHA, et cetera. Uh, With with so much going on, how do you stay grounded in your work in housing? I mean, how do you remind, I mean, especially when you're considering the, you're working in the secondary market, the bond market, you have this huge, huge huge MBS portfolio. How do you keep, how do you keep in mind the American taxpayer slash homeowner who you are helping build a community? Well, I'll tell you, for me, that's actually quite an easy one. Uh, I, I just think of my experience during the financial crisis. I was trading these securities, sitting on a desk, and, and I wasn't a big-time, you know, major risk taker. I, you know, I had built a little business at Wachovia, you know, running my portfolio and my book of providing liquidity in some mortgage products, mostly the safer Fannie, Freddie, Jenny stuff and some, some derivatives based mm-hmm. off of those. But um, the financial crisis was such a was such a terrifying experience for so many Americans. It was certainly terrifying for people, you know, of goodwill who were working on trading desks and didn't want to be part of (laughs) blowing up the world. You know, didn't want to, (laughs) didn't think that, you know, a lot of us had seen this thing coming and had been saying, look, this is, Mm -hmm. something's brewing here that doesn't feel right. We need to be making our risk lower, not greater. And, uh, you know, most and most banks management had different opinions. And um, I just remember those days in 2007 and early 2008 and how scary it was uh, to see markets completely come unglued the way they did. Um, so I, I really keep in back in my mind, I couldn't get rid of it even if I wanted, but I keep in back in my mind, the memory of that experience. And it just has drawn me to the inescapable conclusion that in housing, this, this $10 trillion dollar, gigantic portion of the U.S. economy, um, mistakes have very strong repercussions. If you do things well, um, you probably, if you do things well and conservatively and smartly, people may not even know who you are, but you're contributing a little bit to the overall health of the system. If you do things poorly, the consequences are quite disastrous. And so um, with that memory kind of in my, in my mind, I just, I try and approach the job with a sense of humility and a sense of recognizing that, you know, human and animal spirits can be, they can sometimes get the better of our judgment and recognizing that we want to have an innovative and and forward moving housing system, but also that mistakes have real consequences. And so I try to bring a balanced perspective to these, these decisions. Well, that's interesting because you do mention the kind of role that uh, these investment vehicles played in first what uh, at the at the time I was working at Reuters in London covering the securitization market and at first we called it the liquidity lock and then later that became the credit crisis and then you know it, it has so many names and now it's generally yeah. re- you yeah. know, referred to as the subprime housing crisis or housing bust or whatever it, you know the, the, yeah. the, there are so yeah. many names, but uh, for for today, though, there are several, um, I guess, uh, uh, fortune tellers who will lead you to believe that if you look at affordability issues, uh, the big one is that credit is, you know, loosening up and we're returning. Uh, you see so many media reports that are just saying the sub subprime is back, and you know, it's just a, it's a, it's mm. a new mortgage, you know, but a, but a old style, and and you know, if the 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 average person could read these and think that we are kind of heading down the same path, making the same mistakes. Uh, from my perspective, 
you know, I, I personally don't see it, but from your perspective, especially as a former securities trader at Wachovia, mm-hmm. um, you know, what, what, how, how are you addressing that now that you've run probably, you know, the, the, the largest mortgage platform that has a, you know, that the only one that has a government guarantee to it. So right, uh, right. From, from your desk, from, as that, you know, securities trader perspective, what, what are you seeing uh, that you, the administration are doing to address issues to ensure that we don't run into the same uh, credit and liquidity issues that led to the previous crisis? Right. Good question. Well, it is important, I think, to know that there are some differences that are to the good um, between right now and sort of the 2006-2007 period. And those differences include um, better underwriting standards. Um, You can't do no-doc loans. Um, Mortgages need to be fully amortizing. So we, we we have some guardrails in place that didn't exist uh, in the, in the years that that were a run-up to the financial crisis. And I think that's all, that's all very positive and that's marginally helpful. What I see taking place that concerns me is that we do have an affordability crisis in, in the sense that both rent and um, the price of owning a home continues to go higher and higher. So the prices of, price of housing units, single family and multifamily housing unit, units is greatly outpacing uh, the increase in wages in our country. And so the net effect of that is that for people to live anywhere near where they want to live and where they work, they're having to pay more and more as a share of their income yes. to housing. Mm-hmm. And we actually see, we actually see the marginal borrower and the marginal renter paying above 50% in, in many cases of their take home pay just to their, their mortgage or just to their rent. And I don't think that's sustainable at all. I think that that that's really where we have a problem brewing. Now this is not, we don't have speculation to anywhere near the extent we had in 06 and 07. We don't have anywhere near as number of, you know, individual Americans getting six, seven loans and trying to trying to flip properties. I mean, that's not really what's driving, um, what's driving affordability and what's driving the price increases. And so that's positive. I think what's driving the price increases is scarcity of affordable supply in and around where people work and want to live. And we just need to kind of, solve that as a country. So as far as concerns go, um, that, that problem can solve itself with a slowing in the tape, you know, a slow tapering off in the increase of home prices or, and, or, uh, an increase in wages, both of which I think would be healthy if they're done very slowly. Mm-hmm. If, if for some reason we can't achieve either of those slowly, I worry about an environment where, um, delinquencies would begin to rise where borrowers, you know, have stretched quite a bit to get a house or have stretched too much uh, to pay rent and something goes wrong in, in their life, whether, whether it be a leaky roof or whether it be a health event. Yeah. And suddenly the ability to pay these mortgages just becomes unaffordable and life, life happens. And so you, you start to have this sort of frog in a boiling water thing going where the prices of homes just keep getting higher and higher and and wages aren't keeping pace and we really need to see some wage inflation to help help solve that and so that that's kind of i think the the worry that is that lives in the back of my mind for our, our housing system right now and it's it's you know it's uh really great to hear that issues like household wealth 
and uh, just day-to-day living are a factor in your day-to-day. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking to Michael Bright. He's the chief operating officer of Ginny May. He is a, you know, a, a bond guy. And, uh, you know, uh, like uh, so many press reports would have told us in the past, you know, bond traders were essentially after something um, that was more closely attuned to their personal wealth enrichment than the actual uh, households that they were collateralizing. In this case, you know, um, it's, it's great to hear that you're thinking of the taxpayers as investors in many ways. So uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's good to hear that you have, that you really have a handle on all those issues. Um, and if anything, that should be a vote of confidence in, uh, in your leadership at Ginny May, um, nearing $2 trillion in mortgage-backed security. Well, you know, can I, can I make a, I appreciate that. It's funny, the securitization market, if, it was really born out of that scene, that scene that in It's a Wonderful Life that captures so much of, of uh, 20th century America and many of the changes that we took, that, that took place where, you know, the, the, the run on the banks and the banks can't make the loans and the money's tied up in people's houses. And, and really the securitization market was meant to be a tool to help banks um, when they needed to have some balance sheet relief so that they could continue to finance the economy and keep, um, faith in the economy. And that was sort of the intellectual birth, I think, of mortgage securitization. So it had a very good public purpose in mind. In my view, the, the, the challenge is that, the challenge that we face is that the securitization and market itself has now completely taken over the lending market. And so the creature that we created to solve a problem itself grew to a point where it created a whole new problem of its own. And so um, it's just, it's finance and it's the evolving nature of risk in our system but it is worth remembering that securitization started with a good purpose it just grew to such a substantial level that um it wasn't necessarily fulfilling the original ideas that it had in mind now right now we have the opportunity because of so much securitization going through a government platform we have the opportunity to you know hit a pause button and sort of say all right let's make sure this, if we're going to rely on securitization so much, let's make sure that we have a healthy ecosystem so that, um, you know, we're, we're making loans affordable, but we're also doing it on a sound foundation. We're doing it on a, in a, in a basis where everyone involved in this ecosystem from the homeowner to the insurer, to the servicer, the lender, the securitize, securitizer, everybody, we're all in this thing together. Um, we're all meant to be helping uh, people have access to, to mortgages in a safe and sound way, which means we all have a role to play in thinking about affordability and the overall state of the housing market. So it it's not that unique. Maybe we had maybe people had sort of lost their knitting and forgotten that North Star, but um, it's it's a it's a tool that's powerful as long as we're using it appropriately. Agreed. What I would agreed. Say. And it, it, but it was you know easy to villainize the collateralized debt obligations. And, sure, sure, of course, of course. Uh, you know, um, but there 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 were reasons uh, for all this stuff to be created. And when you look at the mm. the fundamentals of our system, our our capitalist system, you can see how securitization is a very great uh, efficient um, way to repeat, uh, like you said, a, a, a liquidity vehicle to make our assets and liabilities line up at our financial institutions. Um, but yep. you, you do mention it's the used right and regulated, right? Yep. Correct. Yeah. And, and you do mention the, 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 
large uh, government presence. Um, and, uh, and that is something, you know, that I know that you have a lot of expertise in dealing with. You mentioned your work with uh, Mr. DeMarco um, and your work with Corker Warner uh, and GSC reform. Mm -hmm. So do you think that, uh, do you think the public, you know, the, the American taxpayer who's out there just, uh, who works at Amazon, they just got a, a raise uh, to $15 an hour. Um, so like you said, they're, they're slowly the private sector is catching on, right? Slowly they're catching on and, and bringing uh, this change about, which is obviously being capitalist, we prefer that. But um, do you think that the, the, the public, the average worker is, is aware of this entire infrastructure? Is there something that we can do to, 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 to help get your message out to them a bit more? Right. It's an interesting question. I, you know, I would say uh, I'm a little bit of two minds. On, on the one hand, um, what we work on is a lot of the plumbing that's behind the, behind the wall that makes the system work. And as with all plumbing and electrical and things that are behind the wall, you tend to not even know that they're there. You take them for granted unless there's a problem. And so um, would, I, would I be happy if more Americans understood the housing finance securitization market? Absolutely. I just don't want it to happen because we're on the front page of the paper with yeah. a, you know, another hiccup. So um, I'm perfectly happy to be in the uh, wonky pages of trade magazines um, be, because everything's going smoothly and so people don't need to think about it. That would be, that would be fine. But um, it, it is true that uh, we have a very unique relationship between the government, the private sector, and the consumer in housing in the United States. Um, we have, as a country, knowingly or unknowingly made a decision that housing is a unique American asset that access to a mortgage uh, at an affordable rate consistently through the cycle is something that we expect to be available. We like having a national housing rate, a national housing market, not regionalized, balkanized housing. These are things that um, we've, we've evolved into uh, for a variety of reasons. And like I said, maybe knowingly, maybe not knowingly, it's just where we are. And so it's a balancing act. The government has a role to play. The government certainly uh, helps facilitate this. The government certainly has the ability to set some standards and some rules. The government is certainly capable, because this is my main job, of going around the world and bringing capital to bear in the U.S. mortgage market at an affordable rate so that that next, that next homeowner, that next first-time homeowner cannot have access to capital. So that in the USDA program, which we support uh, in a house and a farm in a, in, a, in a rural area that otherwise would probably have difficulty getting a mortgage, can get financed and securitized at an affordable rate. So it's the system we have. Um, it, it's an interesting question to take a step back and look at it from 40,000 feet and ask whether it's optimal and all these things. I don't think any sort of classically trained economists would maybe design it, but it is the system we have. And so I wake up and just take that as given and say, since this is the system we have, let's run it as efficiently, as safely as, as we can. Um, and I'll leave, I'll leave it up to elected officials to make decisions about shifting of that. And I'm happy to provide them technical yeah. thoughts and advice as we do that. But uh, I just want to run it well. And, but you're right. We've, yep. we've, we've created a very unique system here. 
Yeah, and uh, be, uh, leaving it up to elected officials, we should be careful what we're asking for, judging, uh, <laughs> especially with the uh, with the technical side of of your work and the role and the role you play at Ginny May. So uh, I'm going to uh, go off script a little bit, Michael. I'm going to head down in a in a in a direction that uh, most people wouldn't know unless they were me, and that is when Housing Wire was. Um, which publishes a, a magazine uh, 10 times a year. And uh, we actually got an edict from our publisher at the time that he wanted someone on the cover. And Housing Wire was relatively unknown. So this is, whew, I mean, this was eight or nine years ago, Michael. And we finally got someone to agree to be on the magazine. And our first cover profile was actually Ted Tozer. Uh, who, mm. um, who, who, who led Jenny May. Uh, and I believe he was, uh, believe, I, I believe you, you may be his direct replacement. Um, although you are, you are still acting president, but at the time he was really, really mm, cautious about crossing that $1 trillion mark. Um, so we huh. actually called him, we put him on the cover and we called him the trillion dollar man because uh, that read really well. And uh, despite his, uh, his, his kind of conservative approach to investment, once it hit the stands, he loved it. And, and you know, there was no turning back. And Ginny May has continued to outperform. Uh, and now that portfolio is 1.9 trillion. You are reaching the $2 trillion mark, another we just We just crossed it. I'm oh, not trying gosh. to make news, but literally <laughs> within probably 72 hours from now, we crossed over it. So wow. I think it took uh, about 45 years to get to 1 trillion and about five years to get to two trillion. So wow. something's certainly happening. Well, okay. So that's how fast you guys are moving. Uh, you're, you're ahead of me that's and, uh, and that's, that's great news. Uh, do you have any concerns about the pure volume that you're seeing with Ginny May? Well, we try to stay, uh, well, of course I have concerns. Um, I, I, my, my job is to have concerns. I'm, I'm paid to look at the downside. And so, uh, that's what I do. So I'll start with that as a foundation. I, 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 I have a list of things that I think about every morning and every night before I go to bed of concerns, but that's okay. That's the job. The number itself is that, is that um, it, uh, in and of itself a concern? I, it's a lot, you know, it's, it's a lot, but 2 trillion isn't equal depending on who, what type of underlying mortgages you're making. Um, 2 trillion is not same if it's all um, very heavily regulated institutions versus not regulated or not well-run institutions. We have, so we have a lot of banks, but we have a lot of non-banks in our space. I think that non-banks bring a, a heck of a lot of value to the mortgage table. They have very innovative systems. They're legacy free, meaning they typically don't have loans made prior to the financial crisis that are still weighing down um, management's focus on housing they they they're monoline so they're quite good at what they do they do um however lack access to the fdic for deposit insurance they lack access to the fed discount window they lack they lack access to the home loan banks for borrowing and so they're very reliant on bilaterally negotiated financing lines and so um since that makes up over one trillion of our two trillion dollar portfolio that that's something that I do worry about. It's something that I, uh, we are actively taking dozens of steps at Jenny to 
to try and mitigate in a responsible way. We're not hair on fire, mm-hmm. but we're also not ignoring the problem. And so we're really trying to make sure that um, if, if you're a non-bank and you're operationally good at the business, that's, that's fantastic. That We want that type of uh, participant in our system, but you also need to make sure you have access to liquidity when right. you need it, access to liquidity in a hiccup, access to cash. And so there's probably, there is, I would say, more work to be done to ensure that the people who are making this housing system work, the people who are underlying that $2 trillion security, the servicers, the lenders, there's more work to be done to make sure that they have rainy day funds um, in, in, in their on their balance sheet so that if and when liquidity hiccups come, they can survive. And so that that's absolutely one of the top three initiatives we have taking place right now. And um, what you just described is actually a really typical asset manager approach to any other SPV that we saw in the private markets. What's missing, of course, are, and one thing that, uh, that we could save this conversation for another day was those short-term liquidity vehicles that uh, no longer exist. I'm interested in, in how you maintain that rainy day fund. Uh, we can't just, mm. you know, uh, you know, we can't just keep over collateralizing our credit enhancement. Um, we have to, uh, again, look for capital solutions for our capital problems. And uh, maybe we can uh, talk about that another day. But it sounds like for now, you know, um, you're just sticking, sticking to your knitting, looking at the sound financial fundamentals and making sure that everything is going really well and monitoring the non-banks. As you said, they don't have that insurance uh, vehicle, but they are monolined. So uh, for me as a, as a securitization journalist, there's really no concerns there, but uh, I guess for you as a former securities trader at Wachovia, thinking back to when you started in the bond market, you know, and thinking about how, um, most people who enter the the bond market as traders are after that you know personal enrichment to to a level that is a, that is a degree so to have someone leave that and enter the public service is a pretty you know that's a that's a pretty monumental shift in what the general public portrayal of a of a of a bond guy is so i guess the final question i want to ask you michael is now that you've now that you've seen your side, the regulatory side, the government side, and mm. you see how it operates, what advice would you give to that younger Michael starting out in the bond trading market? Well, I think um, young people across the spectrum, myself included, need to go to work every day and realize how little you know. Um, be a sponge. Learn everything. Learn if you're going to be a bond guy and it doesn't matter whether you're doing it for the Walter, you're doing it because it's the only job you got, learn how the bond works, learn how the derivatives work. Just, just suck in all the information um, that you can and, and, and recognize that life doesn't go in a straight line. There are twists and there are turns, but the more, you know, the, the, the more solid a foundation of technical understanding you have, the more opportunities it's going to present to you to use that in ways that you find meaningful as, uh, as life evolves. That, that, that's, that's probably in hindsight, the number one lesson I have. And I, I would, any 23 year old uh, coming out of college who thinks they know everything because they aced all their exams, I would say, you don't know much, <laughs> no matter what you think, you really know nothing. So take those next few years and yeah, make money and, and that's, that's great and all, but it's the education 
that you're going to get on these jobs that really is where the value is. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's, that's great advice. I think, you know, um, a lot of the, uh, bond traders that I met during my time, uh, all retired with, uh, <laughs> when the crisis happened. So, um, mm. congratulations to you for sticking it out for trying to affect uh, a major positive change in the housing market. Uh, not many people are aware of the, the, the role individuals like you do. So I am very pleased that you would come on the show and, uh, and talk to us a bit about your accomplishments and letting us know how you are ensuring that the fiscal stability of the nation and its households will continue unabated. Uh, so um, with that, I would like to just give a big thank you for coming. Uh, I hope you will return to do an additional podcast so we can drill a bit deeper into some of the issues we discussed. But uh, in the in the interim, we'll have to leave it there. We are at the end of our show. Michael Bright is the Chief Operating Officer of Ginny May. My name is Jacob Gaffney. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Housing Wire. We've just been discussing six questions for HUD executives. Mike, thank you. Michael, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you as well. Thank you.